My name is Janice, and I'm an alcoholic. Good morning. How is everybody this morning? Do you sleep well? Anybody staying at the Hyatt? Yeah, they have great towels, don't they? Some those great towels. And we don't get to take them home anymore, see? <laughs> I asked them if uh, they had a hair dryer, a handheld hand dryer, you know, or a hair dryer. And she said, no, it's attached to the wall. And I said, well, those are kind of, you know, they don't always have the kind of energy you need. And she said, well, we can't hand those out anymore so everybody takes them home. So I thought, well, we won't be taking stuff home this weekend. Um, asked me if I'm nervous. Oof. I walked in here yesterday. Uh, the gals came to get me, Debbie and Shirley, at the airport. And I want to thank Shirley for not being able to find her way here because um, I got to see a horse farm. And... Um, when I found out I was coming to Kentucky, uh, somebody said, well, what do you know about Kentucky? And I said, well, let me think. Um, horses. So that's what I know. And so I got a little tour, and it was wonderful. Um, but upon arriving, I registered, I checked in, and um, we walked in this room. And I said, oh, my God, did you see all those chairs? <laughs> Goodness gracious, that's a lot of chairs. Those of you in purple chairs, uh, the spiritual color, you'll be levitating soon. You know, that, those sort of, I like those purple chairs. I thought I'm impressed. I need to say hello to a few people. Camille, I know you're out there somewhere, darling. I've heard much about you. I look forward to meeting you. I've been given a message to give to you all here, which is a fellow by the name of Duke has found his way to Denver, and he's alive and doing well. The only problem is he's fallen in with a bunch of step Nazis. So, uh, but they say that he's okay. So for those of you who know Duke, um, you know, you come here. Somebody said to me last night, asked me, they said, when did you come in? I got in yesterday afternoon, and... They said, uh, is it hard to travel alone? And I said, no, not really. And then as we continued to talk, what he said was, I guess you're not alone. I said, no, I'm not. Because once I arrived here, I'm with each and every one of you. And some of you even look like some of my friends back in Denver. Um, you do. You'll be walking by and I think, well, that's John, you know, or there's Lisa. And uh, I am an active member in good standing of the Happy Way Group in Denver, Colorado. When you're in Denver, please come see us. Some neat things go on there. We have meetings every night of the week. And, uh, but some of you remind me of people back there. Uh, Sandy, I want to thank you for connecting with me today. Um, and I also had an opportunity to share with George in the Fellowship of the Spirit this morning. Uh, we're told here, our book says, i got to warn you about something. Um, I'm a big book something son of a gun. And um, i got to warn you. So, I, And I tell people that in advance because if, if you don't want to hear about that, that's okay. It doesn't hurt my feelings at all. And uh, But I warn people up front in case they want to go eat breakfast. Uh, so, uh, but I was raised in old-time Alcoholics Anonymous, for which I am eternally grateful for the message that I received here. And our book says that our stories disclose in a general way what we used to be like, what happened, and what we're like now. So I'm here just to share my personal experience, strength, and hope with you and um, how I became a recovered alcoholic at Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, so in hearing about what we used to be like, I could keep it really simple and just tell you that I stayed too long at the fair. Uh, I couldn't find my way home. That's the kind of drinker I am. And I'm going to qualify because I heard George talk last night. Love George and Marie. You know, it tells us that we have to have a message of depth and weight, of which both of them do. And I'm looking forward to the next two speakers to hear that clearer message because we have to be able to hear each other. So George was talking about about the language of the heart. Because if I speak to your heart, you might be an alcoholic like I'm an alcoholic. Anyway, I'm an alcoholic that stays too long at the fair. And I heard that in Ohio you have to qualify. So I'm going to qualify a little bit up here. You know, that's what George said. And I'm the kind of alcoholic, I'm a real alcoholic. I'm the kind of alcoholic that when I take a drink, there's going to be another drink. That's the kind of alcoholic I am. And uh, I'm the kind of alcoholic that uh, have trouble stopping 
And if I do stop, I have trouble staying stuck. And the, to know that is the most important thing in my recovery process. Because unless I know that, I don't have a solution. I first off have to know what's wrong with me. How did I drink? Let's talk a little bit about where I came from. Um, I was raised in El Paso, Texas. I don't know if any of you are familiar with that part of the country. It's on the border with Juarez, Mexico. And uh, we're a border city, Twain City. And um, to go back a little further, at the age of 13, <clears throat> I had a brother that was killed in a car wreck. And uh, my dad was a physician. He was a pediatrician. And um, at the time, I started having bad dreams and things. And they quoted, they said I had emotional problems. And my dad's best friend was a psychiatrist. And so what they did was they sedated me for these emotional problems that I had. And they put me on Ellaville, Stelazine, and Dalmain when I was about 13 years old. So my story starts at 13, and truth of the matter is, and we were going to talk about the second step probably a little bit about insanity and what that means, and I went to talk to my sponsor when we were talking about the second step, and he said, um, he said, for the sake of argument, Janice, I'm going to tell you what my sponsor told me, and you were insane the second you were born. You know, we're not going to figure out when you went insane. But, um, and I was not a normal kid, and we all, we all know about that. None of us have great backgrounds. Some people come from wonderful families who are still alcoholics, but, um, I was sedated when I was 13 years old and basically stayed sedated until I was 30 until I found my way here to you guys. Uh, I had my first drink when I was 15. I don't know, maybe some of you remember what your first drink uh, tasted like and felt like. I remember my first drink like it happened yesterday. I can remember what I was wearing and where I was. Um, I was at my sister's wedding and I was in this awful dress that my mother thought was gorgeous and it was an ugly dress. Um, it was kind of an avocado green. But anyway, uh, it was a good color back then. Um, and anyway, I'm sitting there, and my brother ordered me a Tom Collins. And I remember taking this drink and drinking it, and I remember when it hit about right here, I felt, wow. It was like the great aha experience. It was warm, it was toasty, all of a sudden I was kind of tall, I was a little bit blonde, and I was a little bit bigger busted. <laughs> and, and I knew right on that second I had found myself a solution. I didn't know to what, but I knew I'd found a solution. And like any good alcoholic on, on the go, what was my next phrase? I think I'll take another one of those. I always thought I wanted to drink like a lady. You know, I don't even know what that is or what it looks like. I never drank like a lady, okay? I drank and I drank a lot. And I loved alcohol. My mom was an alcoholic. And a really neat lady. And God love her. She suffered with this disease. And she died pretty young, you know, from complications from uh, alcoholism and drug addiction. But, and, and, and we get up here, you're not going to hear a story up here about a lot of horrible things that happened. You know, I, I didn't get DUIs, and, and I didn't go to jail, and I didn't write bad checks, and I don't use bad credit cards, and I had jobs, I did all that stuff. The other, but what I did do is I couldn't quit drinking. You know, and, and I drank, and also a lot of my drinking time was fun early on. We stand up here and talk about how horrible it was. I had a ball. I thought I was a kick in the pants and a great date. You know, and uh, at about 18 years old, I found amphetamine. Um, any of you ever done them? Uh, that's a nice word for speed, uh, amphetamine. And I used to call them diet pills. But uh, <laughs> I needed to lose weight. And what diet pills do for you, I was working at a radio station, and this disc jockey, I had a hangover one day, and this disc jockey came up to me and said, boy, you just look awful. I said, I feel pretty terrible. And he said, I've got something here that will make you feel better. And um, so he handed me this green capsule. And just the exact same way I remember my first drink, I remember my first diet pill. And what it did was it instantly cured my hangover. It was good stuff. And I am going to talk about drugs a little bit here because I come from the culture and the generation where we did a lot of stuff. 
And uh, But what I do know is that I'm an alcoholic. I came here to you through uh, Narcotics Anonymous, through another fellowship, thinking I was a drug addict. And truth of the matter is, because someone was kind enough to sit with me in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, I found out I'm not a drug addict. What I am is I'm an alcoholic who takes drugs to enhance my alcohol experience. And uh, so what I did was I took amphetamine so I could drink more liquor. And I was a fun date. I could drive my date home. Um, <laughs> I shoot a mean game of pool. I love to dance, you know, and uh, I thought that's what liquor was about, all that conviviality stuff the book talks about. And so for a long time I had fun, out at the bars, you know, holding jobs, go to the bar at five, you know, in the evening, and just have a few drinks with friends. But you know what? Something happened. And I don't know when it happened. I don't know what the date was. I don't know how old I was. And then, you know what? It doesn't matter. But at some point in my drinking career, I crossed the line. And that line is that there was no returning without a spiritual experience. You know, and I can't even tell you I tried to quit a lot. I'm not sure I did. I've been thinking about that a lot. I listened to a lot of people talk about how they tried to quit. I went to religion and psychiatry, and I did all that. Not to quit drinking. I just couldn't think straight. You know, I just wanted to be able to do life. I couldn't figure out why I couldn't. But I didn't ever think that had anything to do with alcohol. Never occurred to me. And so, whether or not I tried to quit, sure. How many of us awakened in the morning and said, I swear to God, I'll never do this again. Never going to feel like this again. And then something happens between waking up and about three or four hours later. You know, we change our minds. <laughs> you know, that's, that's the kind of alcoholic I am. So um, how did I get to Denver from Texas is I got drunk one weekend. And um, I did. I was sitting in a bar drunk with this girlfriend of mine. And we wanted to fly up to Denver and see what it was like. So I flew up to Denver and fell in love with Denver. Um, it's beautiful. I don't know if any of you have been there. It's a pretty, pretty state. And, um, but everybody there looks so healthy. You know, they kind of ride bicycles, you know, and they just are so healthy. I mean, you feel guilty smoking in your own car, you know, in Colorado. And, uh, you know, you want to hide your cigarette in your own car. Um, but So I got up there and I thought, well, these people are riding bicycles and they're wearing plaid shirts, you know, and they're like doing the Rocky Mountain High kind of thing. And what I'm doing wrong is I'm living in El Paso, Texas. So I need to move up there. And if I can move up there, I'll ride a bicycle and I'm going to get healthy. So I moved to Colorado. And uh, I stayed sober for a while while I was up there. I think it lasted. I moved into the mountains, and I got little plaid shirts, and I wore my hair in braids, and I was going to like to be this mountain woman, you know, and uh, and uh, hike, you know, I don't know, hell, whatever they do. But um, I don't do any of that, by the way. I don't see either. But anyway, it's cold. Skiing is cold. <laughs> I'm skinny, you know. I'd have to have all those heat warmer things. Um, so anyway, I moved up there, and, it, it, you know, I stayed sober. I did really good. And um, I think it lasted like maybe two weeks until I found this really great bar, you know, up in the mountains with a great pool table, you know, and a wonderful jukebox with that crying country music on it that I love to drink to. So, um, and in, when I moved to Colorado also, I was doing these amphetamines all the time, and I also had the psychiatrist would give me a prescription for Valium. And I'll tell you a little bit about what my life was from 18 to 28. Because I used to get up in the morning and I would take a couple hits of Steve, excuse me, diet pills, and... and <laughs> So that I could get over my hangover, and then I'd go to work, and then the girls would say, let's meet for a drink after work at 5 o'clock, and I'd say, that's a great idea, and so I'd meet them there, and we'd start drinking, and I'd be coming down off those diet pills, so I'd have to take some more so I could drink some more, and then I'd go home after the bar closed at 2 a.m., and I couldn't get to sleep because I was too high, so I'd have to take some Valium so I could go to sleep, and I'd get up in the morning, I'd take those amphetamines, I'd go to work and start drinking, take more amphetamines and a Valium. That's how I lived for 10 years, and I don't know if any of you ever saw that movie, All That Jazz, you know, and get up and say, it's showtime. That's what my life is like. 
And uh, I just didn't need tequila <clears throat> in the morning. Um, <laughs> I just had the preference that I am so, you know what, I got to tell you this. I was years into sobriety. I used to listen to people in meetings talking about drinking in the morning. And I'm years sober going, boy, I'm really glad I didn't do that. You know, that's an awful thing to do. And I'll be sitting there in a meeting and God goes, well, let's talk about these uh, Kahluas and coffees that you used to have in the morning. You know, and I, I was convinced that I wasn't drinking because it wasn't Johnny Walker Red on the Rock. You know, what our minds will do to us. So anyway, I had to get to Colorado to get sober. And here I am with you today. And I found my way to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I did that through uh, a treatment program. I went through treatment. I'm one of them. And is the treatment fun? It's such a neat place to hang out. Uh, they'll serve you breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And uh, <laughs> you get to go to these little classes, and you get to do a lot of stuff in treatment. But you know what? Treatment is not Alcoholics Anonymous. It is not. What it does is it cleans me up a little bit. And got rid of the alcohol and explained some things to me. But one of the things I didn't get in treatment was they did not explain to me what was wrong with me. You know, they talked to me about my past. They talked to me about my childhood. They talked to me about a lot of stuff. But they didn't talk to me about specifically about what alcoholism is as it's defined in the doctor's opinion. Now, do I criticize treatment? Absolutely not. It's a great place for some of us to go. And treatment centers now really aren't open that much um, because of a lot of reasons, but the abuse of the system. And, and so they're not open like they used to be. But I hung out there for four weeks. I stayed sober for about a year. And uh, to any newcomers who may be out there, I'm going to tell you a little story. I stayed sober about a year. And um, I started going to some meetings. And before I left treatment, they said to me, Janice, you have a treatment plan. I mean, like, where are you going to go to meetings? And I said, don't worry about me. I'll get to meetings. And they said, no, 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 no. Let's make a little list of every week where you're going to go. Don't worry. I'm close to York Street. I'm close to all kinds of stuff. I'll get there. And so when I got out, I didn't have plans where I was going to go. And I'd go to a couple meetings. Have any of you ever come to Denver and been at York Street? Fabulous place, isn't it? Boy, it's full of some real alcoholics, isn't it? <laughs> Nasty looking old chap. And uh, <laughs> I walked in at York Street and I looked around and I said, man, oh man, oh man, these people are real alcoholics and I'm a doctor's kid and I don't look like them and I don't think I have this problem. So then I went to some other meetings and what I learned to do was I would arrive just a little bit late because they were all hugging and acting stupid and uh, <laughs> I'd stay around for the meeting and I'd have to leave just a little early because they would like hold hands and pray. And I thought, I've done this. I've been to prayer meetings. I've been saved. Uh, I don't need it, but I'll hang out at these meetings. So um, after about a year of doing that, I woke up, I checked in December 30th, 1979, and around November of um, 80, I started feeling a little bit lonely. Hol uh, holidays were coming up, and I'm going, where are all these new friends of mine in the fellowship that they were telling me I was going to have? How come they're not hanging out, and how come they're not calling me? I don't understand. You know, and uh, what a, this isn't such a good deal. So I started getting lonely and feeling sorry for myself, and... Anyway, well, what do we do? We feel lonely and feel sorry for ourselves. I ended up going back to old places where I knew that people liked me and liked to hang out with me. And that took me back to McShane's, which is my favorite place to drink. And my friends there knew I didn't drink, and they were really proud of me. And what they would do is when we would sit down, they'd take those wine glasses away and say, oh, friend here doesn't drink anymore. They thought that was great. And then they'd like lines of cocaine on the dinner plate. Okay? So... And the reason I talk about drugs here is um, there's a little message in this. Is I, I went back out on cocaine, and I stayed out on cocaine for five months. And the problem with my mind is it told me that I was doing something that was okay. It wasn't Johnny Walker Red, and it wasn't little diet pills, and it wasn't Valium. So something in my mind told me it was okay for me to do something else, and it was not okay, and it almost killed me. So what happened was I had what I call the ultimate second on May 2nd or May 3rd of 1981 when God spoke to me and my alcoholism and drug addiction was removed. Uh, I do not believe that I got sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. I got sober, and you guys have taught me how to stay sober, and that's what we're going to talk about 
But the thing about the drugs, and I'll leave it at that, is that we don't always talk about total abstinence here at Alcoholics Anonymous. And I came from a fellowship that talks about total abstinence, and I don't get to be smoking dope on Sundays, okay? And um, and I, I don't, and I don't get to be doing cocaine because it doesn't look like Johnny Walker Red. And um, and that was the lesson I had to learn. So I share that with you today. But I know that I'm a real alcoholic. And when it ended for me, it ended. It was over. And I knew at that time that I'd be willing to do whatever it took to never take a drink again, whatever that was. You know, I started learning, and I was very lucky. And I hope some of you are as lucky as I am that. I ended up with a group of people who um, were not really terribly kind. They did not tell me everything was going to be okay. They did not say, oh, Janice, honey, I'm sorry, you're not feeling good. You'll feel better tomorrow. What they used to say to me were things like, well, have you gone to a meeting and talked about this today? And I'd say no. And then they'd say, well, why don't you do that and call me when you're done? Boy, that's what I got. Right? And I'm grateful for that. Because I hear sometimes in meetings telling people it's going to be okay. Guess what? If you're a suffering alcoholic like I'm a suffering alcoholic, it is not going to be okay unless we find a solution. You know, we talk in here about, um, before we pray about, for the alcoholic who still suffers, that could be any one of us sitting out here. It may be a newcomer, and George said it last night, it could be someone 2, 5, 10, 12, 15, or 28 years sitting here. Both George and Marie talked about active alcoholism that is untreated here in this program. And what I am fortunate to have found was a solution. But the first thing I had to know was what was wrong with me. When I talk, you know, there's a lot of promises. I, mean, I just got a body rush when... Um, he opened the meeting with the promises from the 10th step. That promises me that sanity will have returned. The sanity of not suffering with active alcoholism. That's a promise. You know, that I've been fortunate enough here to have sponsorship. I heard George talk a lot about his sponsor last night. I got a great sponsor, and if you don't get one. <laughs> you know, if there's a question in your mind about sponsorship, you know, or who you're with, or you need a message of more depth and weight, go get someone else. Our lives depend on it here. I have someone that had a really good sponsor who showed him precisely how to do what's in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And the way I got this sponsor was I was about mm, four or five years sober and I wasn't feeling too good. Any of you ever been feeling quite right in recovery? You know, like, skin doesn't fit, you want to shed it. You know, don't fit in your body and can't quite put your finger on it. And I was a service junkie for years early in recovery. I mean, I was on it all the time. When I got here, I was told, go to meetings, get a book, get a sponsor, work the steps, and be a service. That was the message I got. I did not get, you're going to be okay. All right? And um, so anyway, I go to hear this person speak this night, and I, and I heard some things. And this person, like George was describing, spoke to my heart. Said some very critical things. Said, you never have to feel this way again. You never have to drink again. And if you're lucky, you will have people in this program who will love you enough to let you make your own mistakes. I said, that guy's for me, because I'm going to be making a lot of mistakes. You know, I talked about our personal adventures before and after. Had any personal adventures after? I've had more adventures after I got sober, I think, than I did before. <laughs> and there's no joke. But I listened to this person talk, and it was so precise that they went through exactly what they had done. And I ended up calling this person, talking to him every once in a while. I said, you don't know me. But I'm not a very good sponsor, I don't think. And I heard you say some things, so can I call you every once in a while and ask you some questions about what you do with people? He said, sure. So I call him like once a week. I call it coming in the back door. You know, and I call him and say, you know, this sponsor, he asked me this, what would you do? And he'd tell me. He said, thanks. Call him the next week. You know, this sponsor, he asked me about this, what would you tell him? He told me. And one day I was talking to him and he says, well, I would do with him what I do with a newcomer. And I said, well, what is that? What do you do with a newcomer? He said, well, I sit him down and we open up to the very first page of the book. And we read that book together, word for word, and we answer all the questions. We do everything that's in that book together. I said, wow. I said, would you do that with me? He said, yes, I will. 
That started quite a journey for me in Alcoholics Anonymous. And he told me, and he will tell you, I was not properly 12-step until I had six years of sobriety. Because <laughs> I didn't know what was wrong with me. I just knew I didn't want to drink, and I'd do whatever it took not to drink. If somebody had said, pile up ball bearings in the back of the room, honey, from floor to ceiling, so you won't drink, I would have done it. I finally heard a message of depth and weight that promised me a precise system to not ever have to take a drink again. In the forward to the first edition, it says that. He uses the word precisely a couple of times. This is a story of how a hundred men and women have recovered, to show you precisely how they have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. To show you precisely how we have recovered is the purpose of this book. This book is not about, for me, to set it on the bedside table and read it when I feel like it. It's a textbook. It says this is our basic text. That means it's a workbook. That means it's a book full of lots of information and directions if it's a textbook. What I learned was I can't be bringing an algebra book to geometry class. <laughs> All right? And so what happened was we sat down and started going through this book, page by page. And we found out that there's a chapter in there. And I may be just preaching the choir, and all of you may know that. Some of you don't. I'll talk to you afterwards. Is that there's a chapter in there about the doctor's opinion. And it is not. It, it, it's in the XIVZ kind of those funny little Roman numeral things. So it doesn't say page one. It's the book one. But it describes alcoholism. And it explains why I'm different from other drinkers. And it talks about if you're an alcoholic like I'm an alcoholic, what our common bond is. And I needed to know what was wrong with me. And what's wrong with me is I have the phenomenon of craving. That's what I experience. When I take alcohol into my body, this little thing goes off, this little allergy thing goes quick, and I want more liquor. It doesn't matter what's standing in the way. It doesn't matter if my honey expects me home for dinner. It doesn't matter if you expect me at the job on time. If I start drinking, I'm going to keep drinking. So someone will say to me, well, I only drank, you know, there was one time when I could quit, great. You know, okay, great. <laughs> We're looking for our similarities here. As a rule, when I sat down to drink that Johnny Walker Red on the Rocks, I was drinking it all night long. I, I actually moved into an apartment building behind my favorite bar <laughs> for a couple reasons. Uh, mainly because I could never find my car. Um, <laughs> whenever I drink, I can never find my car. And the reason I don't have any DUIs or been arrested is because I leave the scene of an accident. That's what I do. When I run into things, I just get out of the car and go home. <laughs> I do. You know, it's like, okay, grab your drugs, get your ID, get the hell out of here, turn yourself in in two or three days. I mean, you know, I'm drunk, so uh, I don't get arrested. And I always had, I had this friend who had a car dealership, so I told him in the morning and he'd go pick it up for me, you know, that kind of stuff. So anyway, we're going through this, uh, in the um, doctor's opinion, there's something else in there, there's the obsession of the mind. There's something that is different. You know, we think in man's ability has to do with outside circumstances sometimes, but it's not about my checkbook. It's not about my marriage, and it's not about that kind of stuff. My ability happens right here. Okay, this thing doesn't work right, all right? And uh, how could this thing, how could I possibly think that this thing works right when I wake up in the morning and say I will never do this again, and at 5 o'clock I'm sitting at the bar doing it again? How could I possibly think I have any kind of right thinking? And what I found out by sitting with this person and going through the book is the only thing that's going to stand between me and that next drink is God. And I've got the greatest job in the world here right now at this precise moment today with each and every one of you is I get to sit here and talk with you about what God has done for me. Because that's what this talks about. He's done for me things I couldn't do for myself. The only thing, anything that I am today is because of God. And it's because you guys taught me how to find one and you taught me how to find one through the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. But my unmanageability is going on right here. And this is the mind that tells me next time it's going to be different. This is the mind that says to me, ah, one drink won't hurt. You know, 
Uh, this time, you know, I'll do it differently. Oh, what the hell? It even worse. It doesn't say sometimes we don't even think at all. You know, that's the kind of alcoholic I am. I'm speaking to any of you out there who may not know who you are. There's something else I'm going to say that I, I hear is controversial today. I hear there's some people sitting out here in this audience and not, God bless you, the Al-Anon, but some of us as members of Alcoholics Anonymous who are not alcoholics. And you know what? That's okay. But when somebody first presented me with the idea that some of us in AA meetings weren't alcoholics, I was aghast. I said, why in the world would anybody want to hang out with us if they weren't alcoholics? I mean, why would we sit in those smoky, nasty rooms drinking that coffee, talking this stuff? No, and uh, why would we do that? It never occurred to me. Well, I started looking around and listening a little bit more closely, and there's lots of reasons that we come to Alcoholics Anonymous. Spouses send us, jobs send us, treatment centers send us, the court system sends us, but not all of us necessarily, just because we have circumstances, are alcoholics. So if there's a question in your mind as to whether or not you are one, it's important for us to find that out. It's important for me to know what was wrong with me. If there's a doubt in your mind, I know lots of people in this room that I'm connected with through some other people who can help you find out whether or not you are. And it doesn't mean that non-alcoholics don't belong here. I love everybody who's here. But if you're a real alcoholic, like I'm a real alcoholic, I had to have a spiritual solution, and I have to do it by the numbers. I'm the kind of sponsoree that I call my sponsor and say things like, how come Sam gets to do that and I don't? Okay? How come Mary gets to go do this and I don't get to do that? You know, and he goes, honey, because you, you don't get to do that. <laughs> Because you're a real alcoholic and you need to do it by the numbers. And what Mary's doing is none of your business. But if you're sitting with people and you're trying to have a conversation with them and you're, and you're missing it and you're doing apples and oranges, you know, about your spiritual life and working this program, maybe you're not talking to a real alcoholic. And so I speak today to people that are real alcoholics. If there's a doubt in your mind and you want to know, I'll be glad to talk with you. Because until I can identify what the problem is, I don't have a solution. There's no reason for me to even begin a second step or to even look at a second step if I don't think I'm powerless. I mean, what, why would I even do it? If I still have the power of choice and dreams, it's just lack of power. That's our dilemma. That's the dilemma. If I still have some power, I don't need a power greater than myself. I can guarantee you. You should have heard me today in the shower this morning think about all the things I'm going to tell you. <laughs> I'm going to tell them this. I'm going to tell them that. You know, it's like, I think I got some power. All right? I get up here and God tells what, what needs to be said. You know, I think I know what's best. I'm one of those that thinks I can wrest satisfaction and happiness out of this world if only I manage well. By career, I have been a convention planner for over 15 years. There is no finer job for a control freak than to tell 800 people when to eat, you know? <laughs> Not only that, I get to pick what you're going to eat, all right? <laughs> so I love to manage wealth, and thank God there's a God. So as we look at the second step, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves can restore us to sanity. Oh, my God, sanity, what does it mean? I told him, my sponsor already told me, and I believe him. He said, you're insane the second you were born. No? So I'm not being, I don't have to go figure out if it happened at 8 or 9 or 12. I will tell you that at 8 years old, though, I was walking home from school. We just bought a new house. And I was walking home and thinking that when I got home, everybody would have moved and not told me where they went. And so something wasn't right early on. Um, and in coming to believe, you know, it doesn't say we've got to have it. Got to get it. Got to know it. All it says is I have to be willing to believe in something bigger than me. I don't have to know what it is. My own conception, however inadequate, is enough. It's just the willingness. God either is or he isn't. God isn't a maybe. My favorite part of that is God's either everything or he's nothing. Oh, my God. What does that mean? Everything or nothing? That's a big question. Can I understand what everything is today? Absolutely not. I can only understand it up to the point where I am. 
But I once said to my sponsor, um, what does God do for you? What does your God do for you? Because that day, you guys, I was having a conversation with God saying, what's your job today? And like, what's my job today? Do I like take care of the plants and you get me to work? I mean, I don't know what God does. So I asked my sponsor, what does your God do for you? And he said, everything. Really? I mean, what, what does that mean? Well, it's a coming to believe in that. And today my everything may be this, and maybe if I'm here 10 years from now, my everything will be bigger than that. But the truth was, it's like, and when we talk about how hard it is to take these steps, if you're a real alcoholic, like I'm a real alcoholic, I, what's my choice? It tells me I've only got two choices. I can go on to an alcoholic death, or I can accept your, uh, life based on spiritual principles. That's my choice. And it even says it's not an easy choice to make. And it's not. It's not a fun thing to do here a lot. It really isn't. To have to behave in a certain manner that's required of me here. You know, when we talk about this program, it also says that, you know, it, we say, well, it's suggestive. And it is suggestive. It really is. But also what it is, is that once you kind of get into it, the suggestions aren't real suggestions. <laughs> it doesn't say on Tuesdays you can do the even numbers. Okay? So you can do 2, 4, 6, 8, and 10 when you kind of feel like it, and then next month you might want to try 9 if you're in a good mood. What it says is, is that once we get into this system, which is a numerical system, and I have to have it by the numbers, right? And um, once we get into the system, it says, okay, once you've done this, let's take a look at number 2 here, all right? So we've got it that you are powerless over alcohol, lots and manageable. Well, guess what? Are you sober? Uh-huh. Probably power greater than yourself. Okay, I got that. You know, it's like... And we need to take a look at, are we willing to turn our will and our lives over to care of God as we understand them? Yes. And then there's a system for doing the thing that comes after that. I have to have it by the numbers, and there's a reason it's by the numbers. And the thing about it being in numbers is it'll usually tell us in the book how we feel before, what the step's about, and how we're going to feel afterwards, after we take it. And it makes us great promises. It's like the promise in the 10th step. It's a whole paragraph of promises about how the insanity of alcohol will be removed. That we're going to recoil from it like from a hot flame. So we're going to be placed in a position of neutrality, safe and protected. i got to tell you a story. Some friends had done something for me, and um, I was going to buy them a gift, and they liked wine. And I went to a liquor store to get them a bottle of wine. It was the strangest experience. I mean, it was so weird being in a liquor store. I mean, I felt like it had been 15 years since I'd been in a liquor store. And I'm asking for a bottle of wine and laughing to myself and saying, you know, I never thought this day would come. God did that. And I had to go to the clerk and say, like, where's the wine? Whereas before, I would have been taking out the quartz of shot. You know, and, uh, but all that has changed. But I was able to, like, buy them this bottle of wine. But being in that liquor store, I know, you know, that I'm in a completely different place today. And God did that for me. So in our second step, when we take a look at that, um, what's our choice? Is there really a choice? Is there another way to do it? I, I, not for me. So then it says we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over the care of God as we understood him. Well, how do we do that? You know, I like to think that I'm going to have some major experience in doing that right on the spot. You know, instantly God's going to appear. And I'm going to know all this stuff, but I'm, I'm going to be psychically changed in the third step. That has not been my experience at all. And um, I've been a little nuts in my recovery. I was listening to Marie and appreciated her honesty. My recovery at best has been an arduous journey. <laughs> you know, and um, my relationship with God has been pretty tough. And that to come to believe in that, because I was a person who came in here who didn't believe in God. That's a lie. I believed in God for you. I didn't believe in a God for me, which made me an agnostic. I didn't believe that I could have a relationship, a personal relationship with God that would help me. And so, in the third step, when we make that decision to turn our will and our lives over, that's all it is, is a decision. 
But what happens after that, it says, it's of no use unless immediately followed by some action, which is a house cleaning. You know, in our third step, too, it talks about the things that are wrong with us. You know, and I remember when, and when you go through the book with somebody, and you may have read it, I don't know about you, but I'd read this book a lot. And when I sat down with this guy and went through this book, there were things in there that I had never seen before, that they'd never even come out at me. And things about lack of power, that was our dilemma. And that the purpose of this book is to enable you to find a power greater than yourself which will solve your problem. That's the purpose of the book, which completely blew me away. I had never seen that in there in five or six years. But I knew what the purpose was and why I was doing this. So it teaches me to write inventory. But prior to that, it talks about why I have to do this. It talks about selfishness and self-centeredness. It says that, we think, is the root of our problem. Self, manifested in all these ways, is what's at the root of the problem. And in order for me to have God in between me and that next strange, i got to be rid of self. In order to protect me from that strange mental blank spot, i got to have God between me and that next strange. And this is the only way that I've been shown that works by the numbers. So it describes me in the third step. It describes me when it talks about that person that's uh, sweet and kind and, oh, I don't know, what are we, manipulative? And <laughs> you know, but the way it describes it, not us, me, I'm a nice, kind, sweet, wonderful person. You know, but it talks about the truth of the matter is we're a little bit of both. And, and I was the kind of person that, like, when I was angry with you, you know, I would get sweeter and sweeter and sweeter to get my point across. You know, it's like, and the angrier I got, the kinder I got. You know, it's just like I would just go to any length to get my point across, but I'd never show you my anger. So I thought if I was sweet, it was okay. If it looked good, it was okay. And I found out here that's not okay. You know, so I take a third step. And how we take those third steps, I love what Marie said today. You know, it's about taking it with someone else. And when I work with people, and I'm really lucky, I get to work with a lot of women. And um, But it says we think well before taking this step. And I ask people to go home and think about it for a week, because I've been told God takes our third step far more seriously than we do. If we've ever taken a third step and not followed up on it, um, you know what the consequences of that are. So in taking that third step, I have to launch out on a course of vigorous action. And that's in doing my inventory. And in looking at my inventory, the three areas that we look at, you know, that's a little message. You know, this book is very, very specific about things that are going to get us strong, too. It talks about if we fail to enlarge our spiritual lives, we work in self-sacrifice for others. And when harboring such feelings, we shut ourselves off from the sunlight of the spirit and the insanity of alcohol returns and we're sure to drink again and for us to drink is to die. I also talks about continuing to participate in sexual behavior that harms others. It's going to get us drunk. But it's very specific about that. And, I, you know, you go to meetings and, and somebody's gone out and, and they say, well, I just quit going to meetings. And, uh, but the friends I know that have gone out, and I've had some friends die here, and uh, friends that have gone out, it's like, what kind of behavior am I participating in today that sets me off from the sunlight of the spirit? Because that's the thing that stands between me and the next drink. And inventory is a tool for me to be able to look at that. Because it says we need to face and be rid of the things that are blocking us. Well, blocking us from what? Blocking us from God. It's a fact-finding and a fact-facing process. We're going to put all this stuff down on paper, and that's what I've had to do. I've written a lot of inventories. I do not come from the school of thought. I've been really lucky. The people I work with, they go through the work on a pretty regular basis. And I just came through another set. I had an opportunity to do like a little workshop in my house with seven or eight people. And we went through the steps over a seven or eight week period. We did step one in a week, step two, step three, etc. And every time I go through the work, I take a look at my alcoholism. I say, could I maybe not be an alcoholic? So that I can take a look at that again. And I got to go back through the work once again. And this is the first inventory I've written you guys that when I just stepped it, it took less than six hours. <laughs> it took me half an hour. I was just thrilled to death. And, um, but I have these volumes of inventory. 
And uh, we got a lot to catch up on. I'm one of those in recovery that's been sicker than others. And I didn't find out what sicker than others was until I had about six or seven years. I really thought I was the, the queen bee, you know, and that I was, I had a good job. I had, you know, I dressed well. I did all the stuff. I was a service junkie. And I woke up at about six or seven years unable to function in my body. And I listened to Marie talk about that, and I went nuts. I went nuts in seven to ten years and uh, had a lot of problems. And I'll share some of that with you today because we do life here in Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, what we get, though, is a God that helps us do that in a system and these steps that allows us to come out of it. Um, while I was in recovery here, I got involved in a relationship. I'm sure none of you have done any of this, but I, uh, <laughs> I've been the queen of relationships. And um, they just didn't make sense to me. But this particular one was more interesting than others. It was a really abusive relationship. There was. There was a really dangerous thing that was going on. And my anger came out. And I'm not going to stand up here and tell you that it was this guy's fault. Because I am no day at the beach. Okay? Uh, I'm pretty fiery. And I loved Marie talking about throwing those clay pots. I broke every mug and every ashtray in my house during the course of this relationship. I almost had no dishes. But uh, what I found out was I was angry. And I speak to women out there that if you're having any trouble with your anger, talk to somebody about it. Because uh, we're taught not to get angry. We really are. We're taught little girls don't do that and nice ladies don't get angry. I don't get angry. I get homicidal. Um, <laughs> I am pure fire. I'm Italian and I'm wild and I'd love to blame it on something. I was full of rage. And I'd call my sponsor in the middle of this stuff and he would say to me, you're outraged. Outraged. And I was. I was outraged. Boy, everything was out, boom, broken. And, uh, <laughs> but, and you know that line about pause and doubtful or agitated? And he'd say, you need to pause when you're doubtful or agitated. And I said, honey, I go from calm to ballistic in a nanosecond, okay? I don't know where that pause when doubtful or agitated is. But I was in a relationship that had the potential to kill me. And uh, we were very dangerous for each other. And we were, you know. And actually, I used to love it when he would drive up. My adrenaline would start pumping, and I'd think, here we go. You know, we're getting ready for the next round. And... um it was just wild, and, uh, and I was doing some crazy stuff, six, seven, eight years, nine years. And I found out also that I had some issues that were outside of Alcoholics Anonymous. I went to therapy, and I, I like to share that, um, and I believe therapy is a spiritual tool for me in that it presents information to me that is only self-knowledge that is no good unless it ends up on the tablet. But there were things that were wrong with me that you guys couldn't help me with, and so I had to seek outside help. But during the course of this relationship, I used to write inventory all the time and take it to my sponsor. Because I wanted to feel better. I wanted it fixed. I wanted it different. And one day I'd taken him this inventory and he says to me, aren't you sick of writing on this? And he says, because I'm sick of listening to it. Okay? And I'm thinking, this is your job to listen to my inventory. Okay? What do you mean you're sick of listening to it? And then one day near the court, and this thing was kind of coming to a close, I'm, I'm driving home and I remember where it happened. You know how you have those little spiritual booms that kind of happen every once in a while? And he tried to hang on to it for a week. It doesn't work. But anyway, it's like I got this spiritual aha. Uh-huh. And what it said was, you are beyond human age. You are beyond human age to leave that relationship. You are beyond human age to do this any differently than how you've been doing it. And I got it. This wasn't just about not drinking alcohol. This is about I'm beyond human age, period. It kind of changed about God is either everything or he's nothing. I did not have the power to leave a relationship that had the potential to kill me. You know what was sad was I was out speaking, talking, doing stuff, acting like a normal person. I'd go home and start throwing things and want to stab it. And I was unable to change that behavior. And then I sat down and I truly surrendered the deal. And I wrote some inventory. I fisted at that stuff. And I did six and seven and eight and nine. God healed me and I walked away from that deal. 
And that's how I learned that this is a design for living which will solve all your problems. I get really excited about recovery, you guys, and the reason is it works in my life every single day. Am I perfect at it? Absolutely not. I'm the biggest pain in the butt sponsor you've ever met. My sponsor, he'll tell me to do something, okay, I don't call him for three months, okay? And because you don't be calling this boy back if you don't do what he asks, okay? And you can't call back and complain about something else because he's going to say, isn't this attached to the last thing we talked about? So we go through these spells. So what I do is I keep this circle of girlfriends who'll sit down and have a cup of coffee with me, okay? And we'll hammer about all the garbage. You know, it's like, okay, he's no good, but if I had on the right stockings. And then when it's all said and done and I know my life's at stake and I'm shutting off some life spirit, I call Don. I go, honey. And he goes, well, and one day I even said to him, how come you don't tell me to write inventory anymore? You know what he said? He said, oh, I assume you knew that. See, that's just what we do. And I went, oh. See, I was still waiting for this guy to tell me every second about what to do. Now, I do call him sometimes before I come speak. i got to tell you this. I called him a while back. And um, I said, then what am I going to tell all these people? And he goes, well, why don't you start with the truth? So I really am. <laughs> he knows me, you know. But that's what I found out. And that's why inventory, you know, am I great at it? No. Listen, am I the kind of person that wants to go home tonight? You know, since there's not a banquet, you know, I am not going to go up to my room and write a little inventory because I have nothing else to do. All right? I'm not that way. And I don't think very many of us are. All right? Who wants to do that? Nine times out of ten, I don't write inventory unless I'm absolutely up against it in my life at stake and I'm in so much pain I know I'm going to die. No? You don't. Because if I still think I can manage well, I'm going to do it. You know? So, you know, it's like, we just instantly become spiritual. What the hell is spiritual anyway? You know, it's like, I remember thinking for a long time here that spiritual was quiet, sweet, darling, retiring, not outspoken, all the things I'm not. You know, and I thought, I'll never be spiritual. You know, quiet people are spiritual. And, uh, but what I found out was I have a God personal to me, and what I have to do is live according to spiritual principles and to conduct my life with some level of integrity. The only way I can get to that kind of stuff is through inventory. Let's talk about fear inventory. Everybody loves fear. You know, have you ever walked up to anybody and said, I'm in a little fear today, and they go, oh, honey, fear is lack of faith. Don't you want to just slap them? You know? You go, no kidding. If fear lack of faith, I'll be damned. You know, thanks. Thanks for helping me. I really appreciate your insight. You know, you know what fear is? Fear is fear. Okay? And, and I fully believe this, that you have not lived in Alcoholics Anonymous unless you've lived in stark terror. Screw fear. Let's do some terror. Have you ever awakened in the morning and not been able to get out of bed because you have, like, the terror of the day that has no name and no voice? You know? It's like, how do you do it? How do you, the first thing you gotta reach for the phone and call your sponsor and tell them they're gonna get out of bed. You know? And I'm told I'm supposed to check in first thing in the morning with God. I said to my sponsor, what do you say to God first thing in the morning? And I'm thinking he does some big prayer, right? You know what he says? He goes, well, you know what I say to God in the morning? I go, good morning, God. No? Good morning. I go, really? That's the first thing you say to him. He says, yeah, just good morning, God. How you doing? You know. And uh, but I wake up in care. Ever had the night cares? I run a little business, all right? And I haven't been hot on it lately. And my sister and I are in business together. And the funds are not flowing in. But I'm thinking, it's going to be okay. I go to bed one night. I'm lying in bed. And I'm having my cup of sleepy time tea, reading a little book, being very spiritual, headed off into the land of Nod, right? Very quietly, and at 11 o'clock, this voice, the voice that I love so well, comes across and says, you're going to starve to death. <laughs> I say, thank you for sharing. You know, it's like... That one kept me up till about 3 o'clock in the morning. So let's do a little start here. But truth of the matter is, let's quit acting spiritual. Let's find out the truth about who we are. 
And if I think I got it all sewn up, I don't need any God helping me with stuff. I don't need a God to get me out of this. I don't need you guys if I got it all sewn up. I got to stand up here and tell you guys, I hear the voice at 11 at night telling me I'm going to starve and be pushing the basket. That's what I hear, and I bet some of you hear that too. The other thing is I've done crazy, crazy stuff here. Crazy stuff. And I will share this. I've watched people get loaded because they did crazy stuff. And they didn't tell anybody about it. I fully believe in the take it to the grave stuff. That if you have a sponsor that you can't tell your take it to the grave stuff to, get up off it and go get someone you can because our lives depend on it. And we do crazy stuff sober. You know, I thought when I got here that things would instantly clear up and I'd be this instant with everything about me. Everything from beginning to end. He was out of town for two years. I just fixed up some stuff with him because I said, I need to catch you up. I need to catch up on where I've been. He knows absolutely everything. He knows my deepest, darkest secrets. And some of us have those deep, dark secrets we need to share with people. So fear is the evil and corroding thread. The fabric of our existence is shot through with it, it says. And if you imagine what a fabulous picture that that brings, here's the fabric shot through with these threads of fear. It talks about sets in motion trains of circumstances. And that's what that is. Train, you know, kicks up the speed. But didn't we insist that the ball rolling? My sponsor used to say to me, and he told me this, he said, fear feels like it happens right in here in your center in your gut, you know, because that's where you feel it. Start right here. This is the thing that's unmanageable. This is the thing that's got to get cleared up because this is where the fear starts. It's the voices that talk to me. And it talks about our relationship inventory. It calls it a sex inventory, and I call it, a, and some of my friends, we call it a conduct inventory. We view our conduct over the years past. Hey, take a look at that. You know, whatever the kinky stuff is, whatever that stuff is, but how do I conduct myself with each and every one of you? You know, and uh, and I want to talk to women a little bit here. See, I've done everything Mother told me not to do, and I bet a couple of you have too. All right, it's really easy for certain people to get up here. You know, we listen to these guys tell these stories about these women and these fast cars and the stuff they did, and we get up and go, "Yeah, I did a couple things." You know, <laughs> make a list, get rid of it. You know, because we all did it. And God loves each and every one of us the same. And one of the reasons, one of the greatest gifts that I've had in my sobriety is my relationship with women. And being able to sit with them and share with them and have coffee with them and talk about the truth of who we are and how we did everything Mother told us not to do. All right? And until I get that stuff discussed and get it out on the table and share that with God and another human being, I'm not going to get better. I'm going to suffer with a crazy mind and the shame of who, of who I was. So I speak to women and it's got a bad temper talk with someone about it. It's not pretty, but we can get over it. I just love women in recovery. I like you guys, too. I've had a few relationships, so I like you guys, too. <laughs> you know, but to women, you know, that we need to stick together in this stuff. So a fifth step. Let's talk about a fifth step. Um, I have a sponsor I can tell anything to. I told you, I told him I take it to the grave stuff. You know, and at the very end, you know, you're fifth step in this stuff, and you know that this is when you got to tell me the absolute worst thing you've ever done. I'm shaking, I'm sweating, I'm dying inside. I can't even look him in the eye. And I said, this is when I tell you at all, don't I? He said, yeah. And my, my heart was pounding so hard. And I got ready, and I told him something I'd never told anybody, ever. And I looked at him, and I said, it's pretty sick, isn't it? And he said, yes, it is. <laughs> I said, I knew it. And then you know what he said? He said, let me tell you something I did once. And he told me a little story. And when I was over, I looked at him, and I said, that is really, really sick. Okay? <laughs> but the best part I got out of that was that person looked at me like they totally loved me. I finally had experienced unconditional love. This person knows the one thing, which if you want to talk about it, I'll tell you guys later. But he knows the one thing about me that nobody else knows. And I knew what it was like to be loved and to be accepted. And you know what? I don't even think he remembers it. He doesn't care. He doesn't care what was in that. What mattered was that I was hearing that between him and God. 
I had to get that stuff out, and that's what the instructions tell me to do. If you're with a sponsor, if you don't trust your toes, go get another one, because our lives depend on it. And not being ugly about it, it's like we need to do that. Six and seven are two of the most wonderful steps, I mean, they're all of them. But in six and seven, we talked about the things that we find objectionable. You know, I've written so many inventories, you guys, and then when I'll do, I'll have these tablets, and I go to do six and seven, I say, okay, God, look at these tablets. They're all objectionable, and let me quit slam off that seven-step prayer, because i got to get to dinner with my honey. Okay? I'm out of here, because I'm thinking they're quick steps. And what's happened here over the last few years is a couple things happened. It says to me, am I now willing to have God remove from me all the things that I find objectionable? And this voice came. We're going to talk about that voice. The voice came and said, what do you find objectionable, Janice? And I thought, ooh, that's a good question. <laughs> Very good. So I was moved to write down my list of the things I found objectionable in my fifth step out of that inventory. And to be specific, you see, there's a prayer. I'm going to go back to fear. There's a prayer for fear that says, God, please remove the fear and direct my attention to what you have me be. And I was taught by the people I work with that I have to be very specific. I don't get to say, God, please remove this free-floating anxiety that makes me nauseous and I don't feel good today and direct my attention to what you have me be. God, please remove my fear of getting up to speak in front of all these people and direct my attention to what you have me be. I need to be specific. So in my sixth step, it came to me that I needed to be specific about what the things I found objectionable. And I, I made a list, and it was just a helpful tool. So I throw that out, and I did say to God at the end in the seventh step prayer, I said, if by any chance I've left out some glaring defect, because I don't see it, please remove that too. <laughs> because I don't know that I wrote everything down. It tells us what to do in step eight. We can go ahead and make a list that comes out of our inventory. So I make that list, and sometimes, and this has happened just recently in the set of the steps I just went through, that there's some amends out of the past that I haven't made. There's some people on old inventories I haven't taken care of. I don't know how much of an effort I made. And there's some little amend stuff, you know, 25 bucks to this guy, 50 to this woman, a this, a that. All of a sudden it came to me that it's time for me to clean up my business. I don't know how long I'm going to be here with you guys. And I may only pass this way one time. I hope I get to visit with a lot of you today. But I better be getting my stuff cleaned up. Am I noble? Absolutely not. I don't clean my stuff up to be noble. I clean it up because you guys told me if I don't, I could get drunk. I go clean up my side of the street. You know, and one of the story, I, I, the first amend I ever made, I was told to make your hardest amend first, and I had this uncle, God bless him, he's, he's gone now, he died like last year, and he died with 11 or 12 years of sobriety. So I was a pretty crazy little girl, you know, and uh, <laughs> I went out to California, and I was over to see it and uncle, and I did some pretty crazy stuff, and I needed to call and make amends for that later on, and involved both him and his wife. And I called him to make my amend, and he was in the program at the time. And uh, we had a great visit. It was wonderful. And then I said, well, you know what? Now I need to call Aunt Dorothy. And he goes, eh, no, don't think I want to do, deal with that. 20 years ago, don't bring it up. Blow it off. I said, okay, because I wasn't going to go and do that and cause him harm. And then all of a sudden, after about 15 or 20 seconds, he said, you know what, honey? Sounds to me like you're working this thing, like your life depends on it. You go ahead and call her because God's bigger than both of us. And I got to call her and the finest amend I ever remember making. And we claimed it out, and she's been sober longer than I have. But those are the kind of experiences we have. I'll tell you another one. I got a brother. God bless him. He's a guy I wouldn't have dinner with if you paid me. Okay? <laughs> I tell you that right now. God love him. God bless him. We just come from a, I don't know. There's a difference. But I owe this guy an amend. I'd stolen some things from him, and I had mistreated him. And through your direction, I went and I made that amend to him. And I had a friend who took me over to his house to make the amend, and the friend was sitting out in the car with the windows rolled up because it was winter, and the door was closed. And my friend out in the car could hear my brother screaming at me. And he was screaming at me about what a no-good, dirty, worthless person I was. And I was the only scum of the earth that would have stolen from him, okay? And I'm sitting there going, oh, God, uh, how long do I have to take this? And God goes, a little longer. <laughs> so, 
so he ranted and he raved and he went on and on and on and I disagreed and I wrote the check and gave him back the deal. And I walked out of that door and I didn't know it then. I found out a year or two later but I walked out a free woman. Because I used to be terrified of running into this guy in Denver just because of that energy. And I ran into him one day a year or two later and I went up to hug him. You know, this guy didn't like it. But I was so excited to see him. And I knew then that God had done for me what I couldn't do for myself. I'd been healed and I'd found forgiveness for my brother. And I was done. If you haven't had that experience, I hope you get it. Because that's what this is about here. It's about being free. It's about getting free of all that stuff that stands in the way between me and God. 10, 11, and 12. Boy, I'm jumping together here just a little bit. But the 10th step tells us if we follow directions, we've begun to sense the flow of His Spirit into us. It doesn't say that we get like a rocket blast. We've begun. And this is a lifetime process. We're now, our job is to grow in effectiveness and understanding. To grow in that. And it's a lifetime job. And that's where all those promises are about not drinking anymore. You know, and, it, 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 and it's an ongoing process. It's also my daily check. I get a daily check, an all-day check with you guys about my behavior. Because I'm so dangerous. I'll tell you about the 11th step. Come to find out, I, I, the 11th step was suggested I do it earlier in the evening rather than at 10 o'clock because I like to watch 9 o'clock TV, like ER and, you know, important stuff. And I said to my sponsor, well, I can get it done by 7, and hopefully I won't get in any trouble between then and bedtime. He said, that's doubtful, okay? So that's what the 10th step is about, is I get to check in with you guys about what my behavior is like. And I've heard people talking in meetings saying, well, I don't have to call anybody anymore. I just check in with God, and I know, and I know this, and I know that. I don't know who. You know, the 5th step tells me that rarely do we find a solitary self-appraisal sufficient. A solitary self-appraisal means I'm hanging out in my head, and that's dangerous, okay? And that's why I need each and every one of you, because my best thinking, you know where that got me. I don't know where it got you. So I better be checking in with people on my behavior. And when it says continue to take personal inventory, see, I learned how to write inventory in the fourth step. So if I write that out real quick, and I call the people I can step with, I'm already clear about what I've done. And that's how I get to do that. But I get to check in absolutely every day. So I talk to some of you every day. Every day. I've got a friend I talk to every morning. Gives me great direction. And that's what's important about that. And that's about knowing that God speaks to me through each and every one of you. And in the 11th step, they're very clear and precise instructions. Do I do an evening review all the time? No, I don't, you guys. I have to tell you. It's just awful to stand. I don't. I don't do a lot of things all the time. Uh, but the evening review, every morning I do it. Every morning I check in with God. And sometimes, have you ever had to read the 11th step like 36 times because you're not paying attention? You know? I start reading it, and I start thinking, okay, now what shoes am I going to wear? And, oh, my God, i got to get that story. And often I'm through it going, what in the hell did I just read? Right? you got to go back. you got to go back. And what I found out was, I was told God doesn't come anywhere uninvited. He's not coming in unless he's invited. It says God doesn't make too hard a terms with those who seek it. So I have to consciously invite him in every morning into my life. And it tells me in the 10th step that I have to be willing to carry the vision of God's will into all of my activities today. And how am I going to do that? And it promises me that I'm going to have right thinking. But the way to have right thinking is to align my will with God, which is to prayer and meditation. And all these numbers just sort of start falling together. You know? But all of this has happened by you all, by good sponsorship, and people showing me my way through these 12 steps. But you know what's neat is that the deal works. And it talks about this at the end of the 11th step. It said it works. But I don't get to know that it works if I don't do it. You don't know how many people have come to me and said, this program doesn't work. And I go, really? Well, what step were you on? The fourth. What happened? I quit. All right. You know, this just isn't working for me. Where are you? The ninth step. Are you done? No. I don't want to do those. Well, if you don't do it, you don't know it works. We don't get the benefit if we don't do the process. And don't get to know all the wonderful things that are out there. And that's why I get excited. It's because I've had some of that experience. 
you know, to be able to know that. And this brings us to the 12 steps. What message are we carrying in Alcoholics Anonymous today? Are we carrying the message of the promise, of the promise to be recovered from active alcoholism? To be recovered. You know, and, and, and my sponsor says he's recovered. I gotta tell you this. You know, first time he told me he's recovered, I said, what are you talking about? You're recovered. <laughs> so I am. I said, well, how do you know that? And he said, well, because I am. I said, well, uh, am I? He says, well, I don't know, are you? And I said, well, I don't know. And I said, well, will I be? And he says, maybe. I said, well, how do I know? He says, when you are. Ugh. Don't you love those old boys, you know? And guess what? I understood once I did what he laid out in the book laid out that today, I stand before you today, a recovered alcoholic. And are we carrying that message to people today? Are we cruising for real alcoholics in our meetings? Are we looking for real alcoholics and taking them aside to explain to them about what's wrong with them so they too can find a solution? That's what it means to me about being properly armed with facts about ourselves. Being properly armed with facts about ourselves is about knowing what's wrong with me so that I can sit with you and talk about what's wrong so that when we talk, we connect. The fellowship of the spirit, you know, we think fellowship, I love conventions, I love to do this, I love meeting you guys, I have a ball, but you know what? This is not going to keep us sober. And potlucks don't keep us sober. When we talk about the fellowship of the spirit, what we're talking about is having shared a common experience of the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous in that spiritual experience and deciding to live by spiritual principles. And that's why we'll connect with people. And so we have to look around and say, if you're on the line, if there's a problem with your drinking or in alcoholism, or an active alcoholism within Alcoholics Anonymous, what message are we carrying? I work with people who tell me, Dan's got to tell the truth. I was charged at one point, I went through a workshop. If you haven't been through a workshop, there are lots of fun. You get together with a bunch of people, you go through the book, you do the steps. It's a wonderful bonding experience. It's just wonderful. And what I was told in that workshop, that I was always to tell the truth in every single situation that came up. It's not a fun thing to do. It really isn't, especially if you have a honey. <laughs> you know, it's not easy to do. But those are the kinds of things I've been presented with. So attached in the 11th step two about the six, the six sense that we're going to develop. And I'm going to tell you a little story. We're going to end this on. George and I were talking about this story earlier. But talked about, um, uh, the right thinking and about this intuitive kind of thing that's going to happen, how we're going to communicate. And do you hear the voice of God? I hear the voice of God in a lot of ways. And I hear the voice of God. I'm going to tell you that. I got it. Once I was praying, I was sitting by my bed, I was on my knees. I'm praying. I'm feeling really connected, you know. I'm going, yeah, this is great. I got this down good, you know. And I can now, God, could I like see your face, you know, if I could tell everybody. And uh, But you know those days you get really connected. And um, But do you hear the voice of God? And do you recognize it? And there's a story I just love to tell about how I found that out. And Bill's story, it says, I was to test my thinking by the new God consciousness within. Common sense would thus become uncommon sense. So I'm talking with my sponsor about how do you connect with this? How do you know, you know, what, what's going on? Well, you listen. I said, well, for what? He says, well, like, once I had to go to the grocery store and I couldn't decide what kind of bread to buy. And eventually I asked God and I said, really? Okay. I thought, this boy's getting tired. You know, he's asking God about bread, right? I can't believe it. So I left, thinking, oh, I'll call him in a week or so. And um, But I'm driving home and guess what? I had to go to the grocery store. And so I'm stopping by, go to the grocery store, and for some reason... I needed to buy frozen corn. And so I went to the frozen food aisle and I looked in and there were two kinds of frozen corn. There was Green Giant and there was Orida. And I looked down and I thought, huh, I don't know what corn to buy. And this funny little thought said, well, why don't you ask? And I thought, you gotta be kidding me. I'm not gonna be asking anybody about corn. Okay? But I thought, well, why not? Oh, I asked, what's this? I mean, you know. 
So in my little head, I said, okay, guys, what corn should I buy? And as soon as I did it, I thought, this is a stupid thing. What are you doing standing and go still asking God about corn? Pick up that all right and get on down the aisle. <laughs> so I did. And I started walking on down the aisle, that all right under my arm, and all of a sudden I heard, Big Giant. <laughs> what would you have done if you were me? I mean, you know, just standing there in the safe way, I heard it. I just, I just paused for a second. And I went back, and I picked up the green giant. I figured, if this boy's going to talk to me about corn, I better be listening and paying attention and following directions. And I love to tell that story. You know why? Because it makes people laugh, and it gets a little light and all that, but if you go out and tell my story, you're telling my experience. This is about our personal experience, strength, and hope. And if you haven't heard the voice of God, go ask him a corn to buy. In the funniest little ways, because truth of the matter is, I need to know what that voice is, because it tells me I'm going to pay in all kinds of absurd ways. And I have. Believe me. Have you ever looked across the room at someone and gone, it's a God thing. And then you take them home, and you can't get rid of them for three years, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's a God thing, you know? And you're convinced that it's a hormonal thing. But it takes a while to get that figured out. God and hormones, you know, it all kind of goes together. So it talks about us being rocketed into the fourth dimension of existence. I gotta tell you that I thought the fourth dimension is I like to cavort with celestial beings on faraway galaxies, okay? I love to check out anything spiritual, anything. I don't care books, religions, I've been, you would not believe all the churches I've checked out since I've been here, because I can't. But this is my foundation. I've been to Sweat Lodge, I've been to Temple, I've been, I've been everywhere. Because I want to know how other people experience God. But I think that the fourth dimension is about being flat out there thinking you're on drugs, okay? Checking out with God. But what somebody was kind enough to explain to me, what is it? Three dimensions is height, depth, and weight. Okay? Three-dimensional figure. Fourth dimension is perception. So what's happened here is my perception has changed, my awareness has changed, and God has changed that. But I see things differently today than I did before, but only God could create that. Okay, so that's what happened. What am I like now? I got a little house, I got a little car that doesn't leak oil, and I got a little business. Everything I've got is little, okay? It's a little car, a little house. You know? But I have some other wonderful things. And the, I have no children. I was fortunate enough to only marry one person. Uh, God love him. He was such a nice guy, you know. And I was just stone cold getting ready to run into some serious alcoholism when I was with him. And I was smart enough to leave. And he just didn't understand. And so my sponsor has even said, the one smart thing I've done here is I haven't taken every guy I've dated down the aisle. <laughs> so I haven't gotten married a lot. And uh, but I, the things that I have gotten is that I can live today with a little bit of integrity in my life. I have an awful lot of friends, a tremendous amount. We have a Christmas Eve party at my house every year, and I have about 75, 85 people there. I've been doing it for 11 years. And the reason I started that party was because I didn't want to be alone on Christmas. And now I found out the party, and for me, it's for you guys. So if you're in Denver on Christmas Eve, you need to come by my house. You know, I get to sponsor people. It's been a wonderful gift. If you've not sat across your kitchen table or wherever you do your work with somebody, and when you see the light of God come on in them with a fire like you've never seen before, and know that you had nothing to do with it, it's just, that's living. And it talks about, too, you know, about the fellowship growing up around us. I have a wonderful network of friends, you know, that are doing this work and that I hang out with and that we carry the message. You know, one of the things I haven't done is done a real 12-step call. You know, you hear those old guys, God loving, that went out there and just did it. And I think the treatment centers is what stopped us from doing that. Now that they're closing, we may get some experience going out there doing that. But I do have people in my house all the time. The other thing is I get crazy people. I get the crazy women. Oh, my God, they're insane. I get them between three, five, maybe seven years. And they're usually suicidal. 
You know, it's like, and I get it. It's more, it's, there's more to this than just not drinking and not doing, and not doing drugs. And there better be a guy. And that's the bottom line, because if there isn't, I'm in trouble. So I have a little honesty in my life today, a little integrity, and I get the opportunity to come and share with you guys. I get really excited about being in recovery and being recovered, because I know it works. If there's a doubt in your mind, I'm not selling it to you, nothing, I just get excited because I am not the dredge I used to be. God's made something here I couldn't have done. I live with my sister. She doesn't have my problems. She looks at me and says, I'm so proud of you. I said, don't be. There is nothing noble about what I did. I got here out of necessity. There was no place else to go. I stayed too long at the fair. If I've learned to live life by other principles, it's only because of what God's done. But I couldn't have found it without working the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. Anyway, I hope to visit with lots of you on here. We're trudging this hat, the road to happy destiny, and I look forward to seeing lots and lots of you on that road. God bless you, and have a wonderful weekend.